Welcome back to True Crime Trine. It's a podcast where the planets align and three friends chat about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. Welcome to episode 51. Woo! I finally nailed the intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like you've gotten it. I've gotten better before. on it. I don't think I've forgotten <laughs> about the planets in at least 10 episodes. Alrighty, so Kirk found this really cool app or website or something, I don't even remember, but he was showing me where like you can actually see the alignment of the planets currently. Oh, oh cool. cool. And you can you can either like have it scaled by like scientifically like how far away Jupiter is versus other things or just like kind of lined up nicely, but then you can also apply the like sextile type of oh, organization wow. to it and find out like are the planets currently, or are they going to be passing through or something like that? What are the planets fucking doing? What are they doing? Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Do they align? It's also been flattened to 2D space, so it's not quite exactly the same, but yeah. Okay, that's cool. That's neat. All right, well, any housekeeping? Just a bit. We haven't gotten new countries or states, but I was looking at our analytics earlier, and we have over 212 different cities in the U.S., which I thought was pretty cool. Wow. So, yay us. So it's not just, like, one person listening to us on repeat over and over. <laughs> well, Unless they're uh-huh. really they could be traveling. travelers. <laughs> Are you a Sagittarius? <laughs> oh, my God. You can't stay at home, man. And then I just want to say that I am participating for the first time in a March Madness bracket. Thanks, Hannah. Whee! And Whee! plans are optional. How's that going? I suck, but I was pleasantly surprised that I got any points whatsoever, given my method. <laughs> Kitties and colors. I ended up, I think, with 31 points so far, which I thought was pretty good for someone who has no college basketball knowledge whatsoever. Nice. It's a good start. Do we have to pay money to the winner? $5. Okay. (laughs) I'm good for it, I promise. I uh, have two brackets, and I was watching, I think it was Sunday, the Arizona game, and I was like, I went over to Andrews, and I was like, I'm just going to sit in the corner and watch this game. You guys can watch TV. (laughs) And then I sat in the corner to watch this game, but I kept commentating all the time because I can't help it. And then apparently my comment... My comments were matching up with the show a bit, too. <laughs> just like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. All right. That was it for housekeeping. Okay. Well, it's my turn to tell a story again. Um, going to keep it international, so we're going to go to England this time. Pip-pip-cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, j- just like that. And let's meet John... Reginald Holiday Christie. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a lot of names. Holy foreheads, Batman. Yes, that will that will come up actually. Anyway. Alright, so John Reginald Holiday Christie. We're gonna call him Christie. Okay. So this is my second time I'm gonna go by last name, but like I was writing I was writing the script out and I was like, it doesn't feel right with John. Yeah. 
So, Christy, he was born on April 8th, 1899. Some sources say 1898. Uh, who gives a shit? It doesn't super matter for our purposes because the date remains the same. Christy was born solidly in the middle of Aries season. So, mm-hmm. bring in an Aries during Aries season. He was born in Halifax in West Yorkshire in the UK. <laughs> uh, and so, if you haven't gone to England in a while, we haven't as a podcast gone to England in a while. And so, mm-hmm. uh, if you are kind of a dork and uh, want to have a fun time, just go to Google Maps, search for Halifax, UK, and Enjoy all the fun names of the surrounding towns. I think my favorite town is Who Who Hole. <laughs> who, who what? Hole. Who hole? Who hole? Who's hole? As opposed to who ha? I almost said who ha. Yes. So if we have any listeners in Who Hole, let us know. All right. All right. So Christy had six siblings, and he was the second youngest. Unfortunately, none of his immediate family gave any account of their upbringing. So what we know of Christie's childhood mostly comes from Christie himself. So keep in mind the words of F. Tennyson Jesse, it is impossible to take any statement of Christie's as true unless it is corroborated by someone else. So. Yeah. Okay. Habitual liar? Um, no. If he doesn't want to say something, he just kind of pretends he doesn't, doesn't remember it. Oh, <laughs> uh, Okay. So he described his parents as Victorians of the old school, highly regarded by the neighbors. <laughs> Great. I can't do any accents. So I'm just going to make weird noises. He was very fond of his mother and was also her favorite. And he described her as oh. a, a wonderful woman who lived for the happiness of others. That's nice. Yeah. You know, she was a woman in like the early 1900s, paired in six kids. So, you know. Yeah. That was her life. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Kudos, because I could not. Oh my god. No, thank you. Put me in the mental institution, please. One's enough for me. I'm good. So his relationship with his father was much more complicated. Uh, Christy described him as, quote, a brilliant man at work and at first aid, being known at the factory as Dr. Christie, and drank little. On the other hand, he was stern, strict, and proud. I always lived in dread of him. Hmm. And this last statement does seem to be true, as his siblings corroborated this part that their father did have a terrible temper, and they tried to avoid attracting his attention as much as possible. Okay. Good good guy. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so there were two defining events that occurred during his childhood. The first occurred when his grandfather died on March 24th, 1911. Christy was taken to see the corpse of his grandfather and would later say that it made a profound impression on him. Mm-hmm. He recalled that, quote, All my life, I never experienced fear or horror at the sight of a corpse. On the contrary, I have seen many, and they hold an interest and fascination over me. Great. The first one was when I was about eight years old. He was actually almost 12. And quite <laughs> clearly, I remember, so not really. Uh, I was not in any way worried or perturbed. He's like, yeah, I was a little psychopath. Uh, Yeah, like, uh, yes. (laughs) This is great. Perfectly normal. Yes, and so after seeing his grandfather's corpse, he started liking to take excursions to the local cemetery, and he would try to peer down through the children's vault so he could see all the tiny coffins. Oh. Ew. Uh, What the fuck? I mean, I do love cemeteries, but it's a a different here. It's different. It's different. You're not going to, like, get a kick out of seeing and knowing that there's little dead bodies in there. Yeah. 
I like the mood. The vibe. They're peaceful. They are very peaceful. They're usually pretty green because they keep the water on at least. Mm-hmm. The second defining event was one that most teenagers experience, losing their virginity. Oh, yeah. Although, soapbox moment, it doesn't fucking matter. Stop putting that much pressure on it. It, yeah. do- it doesn't matter. It's probably going to suck the first time, too. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Oh, God, no. it doesn't matter. Chances are it's also not going to be the person that you spend the rest of your life with. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about Just that. Just make it someone that you actually, like, don't hate. <laughs> Christy definitely put way too much pressure on this and it affected him for the rest of his life. Oh. So his first attempts were disappointing, occurring when he was between 16 and 17 years old. <laughs> According to the man himself, quote, I was never a sexy type. <laughs> uh, yeah, no fucking shit, my dude. Uh, in Halifax, the lover's lane was called the duck walk for some reason. The duck <laughs> And I don't know why. Because the poor ladies had to walk out of there all awkward. Oh my god! Oh. I was just thinking it ride with fuck. Is it just outside of hoo-ha? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the hoo-hole. Oh, hoo-hole. But it, I just wanted it to be hoo-ha. Mm-hmm. So. The hoo-ha hole. Christy did not have any very much success at the duck walk or by the hoo-ha hole. He was finally able to pick up a girl. And they kissed and they cuddled, but they did not have sex. Christy would describe this girl as, quote, a male girl whose morals were rather free, whereas Christy was not experienced and lacked the confidence to try anything. So the male girl then told his friends that he couldn't get it up, and they made fun of him for the rest of his adolescence, calling him. Yeah, they did. Mm -hmm. These are some pretty good mean names. Let's hear them. Reggie No Dick. Oh. And can't do it, Christy. Can't do it, Christy. I love it. it. Oh, it's good. I mean, it's bad, but like, (laughs) those were all done. Mm -hmm. Christy later explained, quote, All my life since, I have had this fear of appearing ridiculous as a lover. I was doubtful of my own sexual capabilities, and these fears became very real doubts. That's my voice for him now. (laughs) Okay. Uh, This particular problem was in his head because physically his penis did work. And he did lose his virginity shortly after this when he and some friends visited some sex workers. No. Which I I guess so. Christy was very intelligent. His IQ was 128. So take that as you will with how you regard IQ test. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's smart. He's not a dullard. He won a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School where he was top of his class in mathematics and algebra. Don't know what the difference is. And good at history and woodwork. Uh, Okay. He also participated in extracurricular activities. He played on the school football team. He was in the Boy Scouts and he joined the local branch of the St. John's Ambulance Brigade at age 15. Okay. Which probably because of his father. That's what I was going to say. His dad was in first aid doctory he wasn't a doctor he was like a carpet pattern designer or something oh did he like do volunteer he did like volunteer like first aid and stuff and so like okay he just really liked it and so christy then also would remain interested in first aid for the rest of his life okay his father was also a scoutmaster in the boy scouts which is probably why christy did that one as well sure scared of your father but wanting to please him yeah despite all of these activities Former schoolmates recalled that he mostly kept to himself with maybe one or two close friends. Probably because everyone else is calling him Reggie Nodick. 
Yeah. <laughs> His neighbor, Mr. Brooks, had the best summation of Christie's childhood. Quote, an ordinary, quiet boy. There was nothing extraordinary about him at all. <laughs> Which he hated. He loathed that <laughs> fact. And he set out to change it. <laughs> In a very bad way. Yes. Um, Not great. Well, actually, he'll use it as his cover. Ordinary, oh. boring, normal guy. Ooh. All right. So the First World War began in 1914, and Christie enlisted in September 1916 when he was 17 and a half. He had technical intelligence, and he was picked out to train as a signaler for the Army and spent much of his time at a practice camp in the UK. However, in March 1918, when Germany launched its last major offensive on the Western Front, Britain needed to send an influx of troops to the front to prevent a German victory. And so Christie was one of these men. Okay. Christie arrived at the front on April 2nd, 1918, and had a short but dangerous stint in action. In May or June, he was injured by the blast of a mustard gas shell. Oh. And for more Ooh. on mm. mustard gas, you can go to episode 12, where I talk all about it. Yay. Yes. Dorothea Puente's father had also been injured by mustard gas. Christie would claim that he was unable to speak for the following three and a half years and suffered from blindness and hysteria. However, his medical records show that, that he was not blinded, nor was he treated for any eye ailments. He only suffered from a temporary loss of speech, coughs in damp weather, and a sore throat. He was discharged from the King's Lancashire Military Convalescent Hospital on August 27th. So it seems like more likely he suffered from the effects of mustard gas for about three months instead of three years. Okay. Mm. Drama queen. Mm-hmm. Yes, because for the rest of his life, he would remain very soft-spoken and blame it on the mustard gas when people would tell him to speak up. I can't. Pity me. My throat hurts. In 1919, Christie was back in Halifax, working as a clerk at a woolen mill, and he probably met Ethel in 1920, probably also at the mill, because they both worked there. They had a very short courtship before they got married on May 10th, 1920. Christie has very fond memories of his marriage, saying that Ethel made me an excellent wife and was devoted to me, and they had few differences, which never amounted to much, and no quarrels. We will need to apply our critical thinking skills to this statement later. Okay. It seems like Christy was able to have sexual relations with sex workers, but stumbled when he attempted to have sex with a girlfriend or a wife. Oh, interesting. Uh, he recalled that he had a great difficulty with sex, and he and Ethel only had relations about once a week. Poor woman. <laughs> uh, eh. Then she's just like, this is what I'm stuck with now. Yeah, he got married so fast, so soon. Well, this is what I always say. You need to have sex before you get married with the person you're getting married to, and you should probably live with them before you marry them as well, just so you know yeah. what you're getting yeah. yourself into. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because you learn, especially sex clearly, but when you live with somebody, you learn, like, who they are as a person. Yeah. 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 And you're like, is that something I can live with? And, like, some things might be a deal breaker because i mean yeah mm -hmm. it's crazy pants so they had sex once a week but uh early in the marriage ethel got pregnant but suffered a miscarriage and the christies would never have any children okay let's get into christie's first crimes yay he started with relatively minor misdemeanors but we will see that trend of escalation here 
1921, he was working as a postman when he was accused of postal theft, and when his home was searched, the police found several envelopes that should have been delivered, and these envelopes combined had money and or checks for a total of about 700 pounds. Wow. I did not do the conversion, but that's a lot in 1921 for Scherzes. Very few of these checks had been cashed, and only one pound had been lost when they caught him, so they caught him pretty early. The defense's case was based on Christie's exemplary character and service in the war. He was found guilty, but got a relatively minor sentence. Three terms of imprisonment, each of three months, to run concurrently and without hard labor. It says 36,000 pounds. Damn. In 1923, he was charged with obtaining money through false pretenses, uh, where he basically dined and dashed at a bread and breakfast. Uh, He was found guilty but only placed on probation for 12 months. The sum of money involved here was very small, and his mother had also repaid the landlady, so this probably contributed to the leniency. Okay. In 1923, Christie left Halifax forever. It's not certain as to why he left, but Christie would later say that it was because Ethel had had an affair. Hmm. Although he said he did not blame her, as she had been drinking at the time. Uh, uh, it's okay, sweetie, you were drunk. (laughs) Or the fact that you were only providing... She was only having sex once a week. Yeah. Okay. She has needs. If she's drunk, she's not responsible. Uh, there is no solid evidence for this claim, but it is possible. Ethel was an attractive young woman and was probably quite annoyed at her husband, who kept getting arrested. <laughs> yeah. We'll never know what actually happened, but the couple unofficially separated and led completely different lives for 10 years. Whoa. I know, it's weird. So Ethel remained in the Halifax area, while Christie spent most of his time in London, and both of them had serious relationships with other people during this time. Huh. So was it just her that, or he's disappointing other women? Oh, he's probably disappointing other women too. Yeah, you don't want to get into a serious relationship with this guy. He sounds, first of all, like a bore. Second of all, Mm -hmm. not very good in bed. And third of all, he might kill you. (laughs) <laughs> what's the worst of those three honestly being <laughs> probably boring. the third oh oh i mean like being <laughs> bored versus dying that's why people don't want the death penalty but they'll sit and rot in prison for a while yes fair uh yeah, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. um in 1924 christy was charged with larceny uh, he had stolen a bicycle from like a little boy oh my god jesus <laughs> and then tried to sell it but was acting suspicious enough that the cellie notified the police. Uh, Chrissy's story was that he was trying to sell the bicycle for a friend, but that story was pretty shit as he did not know where this friend lived or what his last name was. Great. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nicely done. Must have been the mustard gas. (laughs) Oh, I forgot. (laughs) He was found guilty and given a harsher sentence this time. Two sentences of six and three months with hard labor, the sentences to run consecutively. In 1929, okay. Christie moved on from mere theft. At this time, Christie was in a relationship and living with a Mrs. Maud Cole, who obviously didn't live with her own husband. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why they got along. Maybe. <laughs> was this a thing back then? Like, you, like, didn't get divorced? You just, like, you're like, I'm moving out. It's kind of the first thing that I've, like, seen about this. It's just, like, ten years of just completely separate lives. It's bonkers. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's crazy. The relationship was okay, but there were a lot of problems. 
Uh, the major one was that Christy had had a job when they mo first moved in together, but then two weeks into this, he told Maude that he had lost his job and stopped contributing money to the household. So Maude was on him to look for work, but she said that he refused yeah. to do so. Oh. Hmm. By late April, she had laid down the ultimatum that Christy needed to move out ASAP. Yeah. Good for her. Christy did not take this kindly, telling Maude uh -oh. that if he could not have her, then no one would. Oh. He could barely have her. <laughs> According to Maude, on the morning of May 1st, Christy took her son's cricket bat out of the corner and said, This is a strong bat. He then went along his morning as usual. So that was just out of nowhere. Moving on. Okay. Weird. Cool. Nice bat. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> they ate lunch together, but Christy finished first and left the table. As Maude continued eating, she suddenly felt a blow to her head and fell out of her chair. She said, oh, Jesus. Quote, it half stunned me. It was all the world like an explosion. Everything seemed to go black for a second. Half stunned you, girl? Whole stun. Yeah. She screamed, which alerted a neighbor who ran down and saw Maud, who had blood streaming from her head, being pushed out of her front door. And Maud yelled towards her neighbor, Don't let him get at me. He's trying to murder me. So he was pushing her out of her own house. Jesus. Maud had a five-inch long scalp wound that needed stitches, but there was no permanent injury. Uh, Maud was very lucky. If she had been hit with more force, her skull could have been broken and she could have died. Yeah. With a bat? Fuck. I can only imagine how much blood oh that was, though, because, like, a scalp laceration. Oh, Jesus. yeah, those bleed a lot. Bleed, bleed, bleed. Mm -hmm. Well, Christy said it was an accident. The fuck? It slipped out of my hand. He had been merely swinging the cricket bat back and forth to test it and thought he had just hit the back of the chair. Mm. The judge did not buy it and said that he regretted that he could not sentence Christy to corporal punishment, though, quote, it was a thing that would impress itself strongly on a man of his cowardly temperament. Ha! There you go. <laughs> the judge did the next best thing and imposed the maximum sentence for the charge of malicious wounding, which was still only hmm. six months in prison with hard labor. Malicious wounding. That's what it was called. Uh, you know? Descriptive. Not attempted murder. So the hard labor, like, is that like... I actually don't know, and I should have looked up because it's also what happened in Australia. I know mm -hmm. here, back in the day, they did have hard labor. They would work them super hard on, like, those prison mm -hmm. farms. So maybe that's what they were doing there, too. I don't actually know. Hmm. Uh, in 1933, he was charged with auto theft. Once again, he blamed it on an imaginary friend at first, but eventually would actually <laughs> plead guilty to all charges. He was sent to prison for the third time for three months with hard labor. This was his last petty offense committed by Christie, and he's not known to have carried out any other criminal act for about a decade. Oh, okay. This might be because he and Ethel reconciled during his third stint in prison. She's like, oh, you're a bad boy now, huh? <laughs> According to Christie, quote, At her visit to Wandsworth, it was agreed that the past on both sides should be put behind us. At the visit, she said it was a question of divorce or coming together again. I asked her which she preferred, and she said coming together again. After a couple of weeks, we felt as if we had never been parted. After ten fucking After years? After ten fucking years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Jesus. In 1937, they moved to the address that would become forever entwined with Christie's name. 
10 Rillington Place in Notting Hill in London. Uh, it doesn't sound like it was in a great neighborhood, uh, as one contemporary description said that it was, quote, an area of West London that in many ways parallels Whitechapel to the east, except that it was once an eminently respectable neighborhood which has since declined. And Whitechapel's where the Jack the Ripper murders took place, so it's not doing great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And that 10 Rillington Place itself was a squalid house in a seedy neighborhood. Ooh. Okay. The house was described as, quote, a tiny shabby house where the paint needed renewing, where there was no bathroom and only one water closet on the garden level for all the inhabitants. Ooh. Its condition was about par for the course of the neighborhood. It was a three-story house divided into three apartments, and the Christie's settled into the ground floor unit. Closer to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. They then spent a quiet decade where Christie appeared to be outwardly respectable and was remembered by neighbors as quite an upstanding bloke. Hmm. Little did they know. <laughs> oh, little did they know. World War II began in 1939, and Christie became a wartime reserve constable. He had a criminal history, so technically he should not have gone in that position. No. There was a lot of things going on at the time, you know, so... They are like, we'll just take all the bodies we can get. I think they needed the bodies. Mm -hmm. They were looking at other things. Things were missed. They needed the bodies. Someone was just sitting there piling through papers like, this guy's fine, this guy's fine. Stamp, (laughs) stamp, stamp. Yeah. Mm I want to get off early so I can go to the pub. (laughs) Because Christy wanted to re-enlist, but he was on the edge of being too old. And so Mm -hmm. he... They probably sent all the young policemen out to the war, and they needed bodies in England, too, so. Christie was an efficient man and did fine as a constable. He okay. was in another dangerous situation during the second time he was in a world war, and he was working on the London streets during the Blitz. Like a sort of Dennis Rader, though, Christie let the power of being a constable go to his head. Uh-oh. One of his neighbors would recall that, quote, Often he tried to use his police authority to tell us to do what he wanted. He threatened to report practically everybody in the street for some lighting or other supposed irregularity. End quote. Great. Despite being very concerned with his neighbor's minor and possibly imaginary crimes, <laughs> yeah. Christy often visited sex workers during this time, so... Oh, Jesus. While on duty. Uh-huh. That's like that kid on the playground who's like, these are your rules, but I don't play by those because I'm different. But I'm going to mm-hmm. make you follow them. Yeah. And like Edgar Allan Cook, Christy also found himself at the doctor's office often. Although he went more for illnesses than accidents. Like venereal? No. Yeah. No. But he did take numerous sick leaves from work. He was probably partially a hypochondriac, but he also did have like documented medical issues. He also found the time to have an affair with another married woman. But that affair ended in 1945 when the woman's husband returned from the war, learned about the affair, and then got into a physical fight with Christy. The (laughs) husband described it as such, quote, It was a real scrap. Sometimes I was (laughs) on the floor, sometimes it was Christy. There were no rules. Christy fought desperately. I will say that for him, but I was seeing red. Well, he was cozy in London and I was overseas, He'd broken up my home. It was a terrible homecoming for me, and I paid Christy back in the only way I could. With my fist. Bah! Badass! Gloves off. Gloves off! All right. In 1943, he met his first victim, Ruth Marguerite Christina Fust. She was born on August 2nd, 1922, in Austria. She was half-Jewish, although not a practicing one. 
But when Nazi Germany annexed Austria, her family decided to leave the country. It seems like the family got broken up somehow, and her parents went to the United States. Although Ruth believed that they died in a concentration camp. Ruth arrived in Britain as a refugee on June 8th, 1939. She lived with the Reverend and Mrs. Lavasse for a while, and they found her to be very intelligent and alert, but overall mostly morose and sullen, unhappy, and uninterested in domestic work. But, I think uh, it's probably because she thought her parents were dead and she was a refugee yeah. in a foreign yeah. country, but you know what? She was dealing How with some shit. How dare you just not be help- like, yeah, helpful for us? Uh, yeah. For fuck's sake, there's, there's a lot of things there why she might be a little morose, but um, the... The bosses yeah. thought she had a mental illness and they sent her to a specialist. <laughs> oh, Jesus. From June 15th to December 23rd, 1940, she was put in an internment camp on the Isle of Man with all the other Germans and Austrians that were then in Britain, which I did not know happened. Mm-hmm. She was released and moved to London where she worked in a hotel. She met a man there, got pregnant, and was sent to the West End Lane home for unmarried mothers. Oh. I said that d- dumbly, okay. but it's fine. Her daughter was born on October 1942 and was immediately brought to St. Christopher's Residential School and was later adopted. Okay. She then worked in a munitions factory for a while, but left that job for an unknown reason. We also do not know how she supported herself after leaving this job, although it is presumed to be through petty theft and or sex work. Okay. She met Christy, who did describe her as a part-time prostitute. When he was on the job as constable, and they struck up a friendship where she would keep him company on his beat, and they would have lengthy conversations. This kind of gives me Les Mis feels. i never seen Les Mis, so. What? I... Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I don't know these feels. <laughs> According to Christy, she was fascinated by his uniform and madly in love with me. Oh. Doubt it. <sighs> She's just trying to make a dime. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. So on August 21st, 1943, Ruth arrived at 10 Rillington Place. She needed cash for rent, and Christy said that he would give her a loan. She just needed to come to his house to pick it up. No, girl, no. Conveniently, Ethel, his wife, was not present at the time. Christy claimed that, quote, It was she who suggested that we should become lovers. I was rather (laughs) backward and shy. Yeah, whatever. I think a more likely scenario is that Ruth put on her sex worker hat, and it was a little simple transaction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. However it started, they did move to the bedroom, where Christy strangled Ruth with a piece of rope while they were having sex. He said there was a struggle, but she died quickly. Oh. I think that seeing her corpse probably brought back those pleasant memories he had when he saw his grandfather's body as a child. Mm -hmm. He would say, quote, She looked more beautiful in death than life. Great. Kind of a bird. I remember as I gazed down at the still form of my victim, experiencing a strange, peaceful thrill. I was thrilling because I had embarked on the career I had chosen for myself. The career of murder. Oh. <sighs> Pretty certain that this was his first murder, even though he was unsupervised for a decade. Uh, oh, oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> okay, fucking fine. Uh. Well, it's been a while since Morris is, you know... Got up and had a few things to say. Oh, hi, buddy. Oh, look at you. So he was unsupervised during that decade. He definitely committed theft and assaults, but probably not any murders. Yeah. And then he had about 10 quiet years after he was reunited with Ethel. And there's no record of his having any criminal activity during this time. Okay. So what most likely happened was an accident. 
according to one of the two versions that Christy gave of the event, when the two were preparing to fuck, and I'm going with fuck for this one. <laughs> Why, are you trying to say make love? <laughs> no. What? There was a knock at the door, and it was a telegram boy with a message from Ethel saying she and her brother will be returning home much earlier than expected. Like five minutes? Yeah. They're like literally running behind the telegraph like, boy. Hi, <laughs> we sent this boy for some reason. He took a break at the local pub. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Well, as telegraph boys are wont to do. <laughs> so Christy may have panicked at the idea of being caught in an affair and killed Ruth, especially if Ruth had been pushing for a more serious relationship like Christy claims, yeah. but who knows about that one. But um, I feel like no. Yeah. I feel like she was just there to get she some money. She the money. Mm-hmm. After he strangled Ruth, he admitted to being alarmed by the expulsion of her bodily fluids. Oh, God. That's what you were concerned about? You That's fuck. the only thing, because she was more beautiful and death than in life. Until she sharded. God. <laughs> 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 well, in the future, he would fashion a sort of diaper for his next victims, which is almost worse to me. Yeah. Sure on time, he wrapped the body in her coat and hid the body under the floorboards of the front room. In the house? Ethel's brother ended up spending the night in the same room of the corpse. (gasps) No. And Christy spent an anxious night worrying whether the brother would suspect anything. He didn't. When the brother left in the morning and Ethel headed off to work, Christy took the body to the wash house behind the house And then that evening, he buried her three feet deep in the shared back garden and planted things over the grave. Also like Dorothea. Like Dorothea. What's the flower of the episode? Rosemary Hildegarden? Rose Bay Willow Herb. Yes. Apparently that's London's official flower, folks. Who knows? Go to. It's a slightly invasive species, but it looks pretty. That's fitting. Oh, because the (laughs) the British invaded every fucking place? the fucking British. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Ruth's disappearance was reported by her landlady after she failed to pay the rent. A lot sure. of landladies are going to report some crimes, but uh, it was a very chaotic time in England. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, people were coming and going at short notice, and Ruth had had 14 addresses in four years, which would have made her hard to keep track of in the best of times. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. She also had no close friends or family to speak for her. Once Ruth was dead, there was no going back for Christy. He did have a cooling off period to like really let the enormity of his crime settle in, but all he really learned is that he he really liked it. Yeah. On December 28th, 1943, he voluntarily left the police force and got a job at a factory that manufactured radios. This is where he would meet his second victim. Muriel Amelia Edie was born on October 14th, 1912 in England. Uh, She was the youngest of four children, and her mother died when she was around six. Her father was in the merchant navy, so he was at sea most of the time, and the children got split up and sent to various orphanages before Muriel was sent to live permanently with her father's sister-in-law when she was 12. This woman was extremely strict, would only allow Muriel out of the house to do shopping, and did not allow Muriel to have any male friends. That always works. Yeah. (laughs) Freedom's not going to make her go crazy. Mm -mm. Yeah. Uh, When this woman died in March 1939, Muriel moved in with another aunt, Martha Hooper. Her life really opened up, and as an acquaintance said, after her first aunt's death, she changed and started going out with men. She had a number of male acquaintances. And so, 
like I see with pastor's kids as well, a very strict upbringing often leads to a very significant shift to the opposite side once someone has become independent. We notice. Yeah. Yeah. She also worked at the radio factory and told her aunt that she had the prospect of marrying a middle-aged gentleman who worked as a gatekeeper at the factory. This was probably Ernest Lawson, who was actually introduced to Muriel through Christie. And the couple even came over to the Christie's residence on multiple occasions and had tea with Christie and his wife. So, like, double date. Yeah. All right. I feel similarly. <laughs> yeah, who wants to go on a double date with the Christie's? Mm-mm. Maybe Ethel's cool. I don't know. Thus, Muriel was comfortable with Christie and with the notion of going to his house. This made her the perfect victim for Christie, who spent some mm-hmm. time planning his next murder, saying that it was a really clever murder, much cleverer than the first. Good God. for you. Pack yourself on the back, buddy. He planned ahead and took sick leave from October 2nd through 10th, claiming that he had bronchitis. We already know that Christie was often found at the doctor's. So he was very understanding when Muriel told him about her own health problems. Muriel was suffering from chronic catarrh. Never said that word out loud, but it's an old-fashioned doctory word for having inflamed mucous membranes in the upper respiratory tract. Isn't that just bronchitis? Uh, well, maybe. Well, or like- it's, it's upper respiratory tract. It's more like a- Okay. Larynx? Maybe. Laryngitis? You get a lot of sinus pressure, trouble breathing, and a lot of phlegm, which seems- Kind of like a throat thing. COVID. Qatar <laughs> is a fun. I have definitely read about it in the books about the pioneers, but I've never tried to say it out loud, so whatever. It's not dysentery. It's not dysentery. It's not, okay. not pertussis. <laughs> not the plague. Nope. As a reminder, Christy had a lifelong interest in first aid and would also read medical oh, yeah. books. And as he said... My knowledge of medicine made it possible for me to talk convincingly about sickness and disease, and she readily believed that I could cure her. Oh, Jesus. On Saturday, October 7th, 1944, Muriel had lunch with her aunt and left the house at 4 p.m., telling her aunt, I shan't be late. She left behind all of her belongings and her money and savings, so it it appears that she expected to return. Mm -hmm. Luckily for Christy, she did not tell her, her aunt where she was going. Uh, Setting her up in his kitchen, Christy showed her part of the contraption that he had made. A glass Uh jar with two rubber hoses attached. One was leading to another jar containing the water that he described as his specialty cure. She must not have noticed the second hose because it led to the gas main. Oh, that's not good. And I was thinking hookah. Nah. (laughs) This is less fun. fun. Uh, so the, um, the solution that was being inhaled by Muriel was Friar's Balsam, which I've never fucking heard of, but it's a tincture of benzoin, resin, and ethanol. (laughs) And just a fun fact, there are a variety of ways to make herbal extracts, but to be called a tincture, alcohol must be used as a solvent. And you can still buy Friar's Balsam, more likely to be labeled tincture of benzoin or compound benzoin tincture which has additives like aloe added. And it seems like it's mostly used to prevent and treat blisters nowadays. Not inhaled. Probably not good to inhale. No. Well, anyway, for Christy, here we use it as a distraction. It has an extremely pungent smell. So it smells like medicine. She's like, yeah, okay. This feels like going to the doctor in the 1940s. Terrible. Sure. Yeah. yeah. At least you're not cutting off my arm with a saw. Yay! <laughs> He wanted to make sure that Muriel could not taste the carbon monoxide that was also in, that she was also inhaling, which is a bit overkill. As carbon monoxide is both odorless and tasteless, 
but perhaps Chrissy didn't know this or just thought that the addition sure. of the friar's balsam would make it seem more legit. He could play fake doctor. Okay. As the carbon monoxide entered her system, Muriel fell unconscious. Christy moved her to the bedroom, had sex with her, and then strangled her. Ugh. Ew. She was also buried in the garden, and Christy was very satisfied with the whole affair. Once again, I experienced that quite peaceful thrill. I had no regrets. Ugh. No one really looked for Muriel either. So her aunt, Mrs. Hooper, mm. thought that she might have gotten pregnant from her man friend and just disappeared with him. Okay. Shan't be late doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> she left all of her belongings and her money. You'd think you would take that with you if you were going to run away with your man friend because you were pregnant. I think they just wanted to keep her money. Uh, others in her family believe that she had been at a dance hall in Putney when it was bombed and she did not survive. Oh. Yeah, so I think the period of World War II was very good for English murderers. Because there's a lot going on, and everything was in complete and total chaos. So, jeez. This murder also perfected Christie's preferred method of murder. He liked to first gas his victims, then strangle them while they were unconscious. Which worked well for a middle-aged man, probably only moderately physically fit, who did... Just getting by on his IQ. Yeah, who did suffer from numerous health problems as well. So, you know, he's not... He got the shit beat out of him by that guy that came back from the war. He's not strong. Yeah. Yeah. I think he also really liked the game, pretending to be a good guy and successfully persuading these women to come to his home without having to use force or anything. Sure. Uh, he was not exactly good looking. He was mostly forehead. The pictures will be posted. It's yeah. insane how big this forehead is. That's where he puts all 128 IQ points. I usually would say six head, but this one might be a seven head. No, it's it's stacked. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 128 of them. I see. You know, but he did project an aura of respectability and authority, so who needs to be hot? I don't know who could take him seriously with a forehead that big, though. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, it worked for him. Sure. In March 1948, the Evans family moved into the top floor unit at 10 Rillington Place. They were a young couple who were expecting a child, and their story would become quite intertwined with the Christie's, so let's meet the Evans. Okay. Tangent, but not really, this is for the story. Timothy Evans was born on November 20th, 1924 in Wales. His father abandoned his mother while she was pregnant with him, but his mother did meet a nice man who became Timothy's stepfather and treated him well. Timothy was well known to his family to be a liar. His mm. uncle said... I know my nephew as a liar. This is generally known throughout the family. And his mother supported this by saying that her son had a very vivid imagination. And he is a terrible liar. Okay. His uncle also said that I know Timothy to have a very violent temper. And his mother did not support this statement as much, but she never denied it outright. And his half-sister would agree that he was a bit rough with his temper. Rough? <laughs> yeah. The levels of Timothy's intelligence is a well-discussed topic in this case. Uh, his schooling was often interrupted by health issues, and I don't quite understand what happened here, but when he was nine, he cut his toe, and this led him to spend time in numerous hospitals until he was 17. Probably chronic infections, because... Yeah. I guess. That's ridiculous. Like, almost even, like, sepsis or some yeah. sort of or tetanus or... Chop the toe off and move on right 
He didn't really apply himself to his education when he did make it to school, but he was popular and well-liked by his schoolmates. In one assessment, he was found to have an IQ of 65 to 75, a mental age between 11 and 14, and a vocabulary of 9,000 words. Average is about 20,000 words. Oh, buddy. I had to look it up. I was like, I don't know what that means. I need a scale. His head's not doing real good. No. No. Poor buddy. It's not clear whether he was illiterate, as some reports say that he could read the papers, especially the football reports, while other reports say that he always asked others to read them for him. He was a a footy guy. (laughs) Wait, but it's football, right? So it's It's soccer. soccer. To me, this medical report seems to get the closest to the truth, saying, quote, His education is faulty owing to absences from school, the result of physical illness, but he is of average intelligence in spite of this. He's well-informed on matters of ordinary interest and common knowledge. Football. Okay. Memory and attention good. Weak in simple math problems. Reasoning poor. Until his marriage in 1942, Timothy would often visit sex workers, but the rest of his interests seemed pretty conventional. He liked spending time in pubs and at the cinema and uh, going to football matches and dog races. Okay. He was capable at his job and in social situations, which indicates that he was not obviously mentally defective, and he committed several petty thefts, but he never got in trouble with the police. Okay. So smart enough to keep his ass out of trouble, but a little slow. I think so. Like, I think he definitely was slow, but he was able Mm -hmm. to at least, you might might be like, ah, Timothy, that guy. Timmy. Timmy, what are you doing in trouble again? (laughs) <laughs> Beryl Thorley was born on September 19, 1929, and very little is known about her life before she met Timothy. They met in January 1947 and were married on September 20th, 1947. Wow. Wow. I mean, Ethel and John Christie's courtship was like two months, so oh, mm-hmm. yeah. this is better. At first, they lived with his family, but when Beryl got pregnant, they decided they needed a place of their own and moved into 10 Rillington Place. Their baby, Geraldine, was born on October 10th, 1948. Geraldine. That's so cute. It's cute. The Christies and the Evans didn't interact much, but they got along as well as they needed to. Ethel would actually say, since they've been here, I have been on very friendly terms with them, particularly Mrs. Evans. Well, Christie would say that they were friendly acquaintances, nothing more. And there was a significant age gap between the two couples, so it's not surprising that they didn't hang out a lot. No double dates there either. No. (laughs) Timothy would say that the marriage was happy at first, but owing to debt, the marriage started to sour and he had frequent quarrels with Beryl. Yeah. Okay. Ethel would testify that the couple had frequent fights and she could hear the raised voices through the walls, but she could not understand what they were saying. It would escalate okay. to physical fighting, and neighbors would testify that they would often see the Evans hitting each other. Timothy's mother was quick to point out that Beryl was a terrible housekeeper and cook. Quote, She got no hot meal for him, except on one day a week. She did not do the washing up, but left heaps of dishes unwashed. My son was not used to that kind of life. Okay. Uh-huh. She just had a fucking baby. Uh-huh. Okay? Dickhole. Uh-huh. Mom. <laughs> Yeah, Dickle really. Dude. I know this is like this uh mother-in-law like horror stories because yeah, I love reading those though. <laughs> well, she and uh some of two of these sisters would often come over to clean up the house. So and they're like, oh, let me show you what you're not doing right like, now. Oh, look at this on the floor. Yeah, you know. 
I'm sorry, but like when you push a baby out your vagina, you're tired. (laughs) And you're healing yeah. too, so like even walking around can can, can yeah, be further, difficult. Yeah, yeah. And then if you're breastfeeding, and and then if the baby's not sleeping, I mean it's just like total utter exhaustion. So those people can go, they can go outside and play hide and go fuck themselves. Fuck you, Timothy's mother. Yeah. Timothy and Beryl were also getting deeper and deeper into debt, which didn't help the relationship. Timothy said that Beryl had gotten herself into a 20-pound debt and would not tell him who she owed money to. While Timothy was becoming quite the drinker, he would usually stop at the pub for two to three pints on his way home every night. And by the autumn of 1949, he was drinking rather heavily. Yeah, I wouldn't want to clean for that fucker either. I know, right? Yeah. Also, eat at the pub. You're going to buy beer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he still comes home hungry. Like, what the fuck, dude? Where were you? You were... They had a kitchen. They had a fucking eatery. They've got fish and chips. Maybe like a nice meat pie. Right? Ooh, that sounds really good. Shepherd's pie? Shepherd's pie. But there's other kinds of pies. They're all good. Eat that shit. Okay. Well, infidelity also didn't help the marriage. After having her baby, Beryl went back to work where she started a mild flirtation with another man. She would tease Timothy about it to the point where he would slap her in the face. Then he made such a scene at her workplace that she was fired. Oh. Lucy Endicott, who was a friend of Beryl's, lived with them for a very short period of time in August 1949. Timothy and Lucy had sex during that short amount of time. They lived together for two days before Lucy left him to go back home to her mother. Lucy's testimony might give the best insight to their marriage since she was able to see what happened behind closed doors. And she said, quote, he said he was still going away and was going to get a room as Beryl and he were definitely going to part. Beryl didn't want him to leave her, although they were unhappy together. He used to stay out late at night and they were continually squabbling. I know they used to have a lot of arguments about money, and he used to lie to her a lot. Timothy said, I'll give you a good hiding for you going to the pictures and leaving the baby. And when they got home, he said about her and began hitting her with his hand across her face and body. He was in a furious temper. He told Beryl, I'll put you through the bloody window. He was a mean drunk. Yes, Beryl poked him and also would fight back. Yeah. So... But also, she would go to the movie theater and leave the baby home alone. Yeah. Well, we're not not that sure if Ethel was all that smart to begin with. Not Ethel, sorry, Beryl. Yeah. Beryl became pregnant for the second time in the fall of 1949. She was displeased by this turn of events. She tried to induce her miscarriage by taking various pills, but they didn't work. Timothy didn't really understand the problem, telling Beryl, If you're having a baby, well, you've had one. Another won't make a difference. (laughs) Beryl disagreed and was set on getting an abortion. You guys barely have enough money as it is. Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beryl disagreed and was set on getting an abortion, although she would have to get a back alley one as abortions were illegal in England at the time. Of course. Tuesday, November 8th, 1949 was the last day that Beryl and Geraldine would be seen alive. Christy was currently on sick leave for the first two weeks of of November. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, no. And Geraldine. Mm-hmm. His doctor really did believe and would testify that Christy wasn't a great deal of pain due to enteritis and fibrositis in his back. Fibrositis being the old-fashioned word for fibromyalgia. Oh. I know. Okay. I all sorts of things. 
On November 14th, Timothy showed up at his aunt and uncle's house in Wales. He told them that he had been in the area with his boss when their car had broken down, so he'd probably need to stay for a few days. He also told them that Beryl and Geraldine were in Brighton. Everyone would agree that Timothy seemed relaxed and cheerful during his stay. On November 19th, Christy went to the doctor, who stated, I saw this patient. He was complaining of pain on the right side of his back for the last three days. On examination, I found he was in agony whenever he tried to bend down or bring the left lumbar muscles into use. There was extreme tenderness in the left lumbar region over the muscles. This is a case Good. of muscular pain, and I was able to give him considerable relief by injection of a local anesthetic. It will be up to you to decide whether this was the same old fibromyalgia that he had complained of earlier in the month, or did Christy exert himself in some way that made his back worse? So November 8th is the last time that Beryl and Geraldine was seen alive. So then on November 29th, Timothy's half-sister, Mary, showed up at 10 Rillington Place, but no one was home in the Evans apartment. She did speak to Ethel, who told her that she had not seen Beryl since the 8th, but was told that Beryl and Geraldine had gone to Brighton, and added that Beryl was not as nice as we thought she was, and related a story where Beryl had once left Geraldine alone in the house and returned smelling of gin. So... Mm. That probably did happen. Yeah. Chrissy then showed up and told Mary that she didn't know what Timothy got up to. Mary defended her brother and left, feeling unsettled. On the same day, Timothy's mother got a visit from the furniture company where her son had a rent-to-own contract. He had not been making payments and had listed his mother as his guarantor. So the furniture company was expecting the money from her. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Mm-hmm. So, she was not in the best of moods when she wrote this letter to Mrs. Lynch, Timothy's aunt in Wales. She said that her son is like his father, no good to himself or anyone else. Oh. So if you mug enough to keep him for nothing, that will be your fault. I don't intend to keep him anymore. I've done my best for him and Beryl. What thanks did I get? His name stinks up here everywhere I go. People asking me for money he owes them. I'm ashamed to say he is my son. She'll yeah, be okay. more ashamed yeah. soon. Uh, the next morning, Mrs. Lynch gave, or perhaps read, depending on your opinion of Timothy's literacy, this letter to her nephew. Uh, Timothy was not a master criminal, so this may have been the last straw for Timothy as he went to the police station that very afternoon and told them, I want to give myself up. I have disposed of my wife. Oh. Oh. So, Timothy's first confession was that Beryl wanted to abort her baby. And Timothy had picked up some pills from a random guy that he met, but the pills ended up killing Beryl. He then claimed to have put her body in the street drain in front of the house, lied about where his family was, and escaped to Wales. He also told them that he had given Geraldine to a man named Reg Christie, who lived at the same address, and told Timothy that he could find a new home for Geraldine. So the police in Wales contacted the police in London. The London bobbies tried to lift the manhole cover... <laughs> Of the, in front of the house, but they, they couldn't do so, but the noise attracted Christy, and he came outside and spoke to them. Uh, the police asked if he knew the whereabouts of Beryl and Geraldine, and Christy told them that they had left some time ago, and he thought they had gone to Timothy's parents' house. Eventually, the police were able to lift the manhole cover, but there was no body in the drain. Upon hearing this, Timothy made a second confession, and if you are one of those people who believe that Timothy is innocent of killing his wife and child, then this is the confession that you believe to be the true account of what happened. So much bullshit here, but here we go. Timothy told the police that about a week before his wife died, Christy had approached him to talk about Beryl taking those pills. Christy told him that 
he could actually perform the abortion. But Timothy, a strict Catholic, was strongly against the whole idea. Booze it up all night, though. Whatever. But Christy did like to play doctor. He did. Timothy went upstairs where his wife met him, asking if he had spoken to Christy. Beryl had, and she was all on board with the plan. But Timothy told her that he didn't want anything to do with it, and she wasn't to have anything to do with it either. Beryl responded by telling him to mind his own business and that she trusted Mr. Christie. Beryl and Christie made arrangements for the procedure to take place on Tuesday. Timothy was basically not speaking to his wife by then, so he just went to work in the morning. When he came home, Christie met him in the stairs and they both went up to the Evans apartment where Christie told him, it's bad news, it didn't work. Christie sent him to the bedroom where Timothy saw that Beryl was dead and, quote, had been bleeding from the mouth and nose, and that she had been bleeding from her bottom part. Oh, no. Ugh. Timothy came back to the kitchen and asked Christy what he was going to do about it, and Christy said that he would dispose of her body in the drain. Timothy would also later state that he saw Christy struggling, but successfully carrying Beryl's body down the stairs. Yeah, but not to the drain, to the garden. Well, just down the stairs to his own apartment. Oh, on Wednesday, Timothy went to work as usual and said that Christy watched Geraldine. When Timothy came home from work, Christy told him that he contacted a young couple in East Acton who would be happy to look after Geraldine. On Thursday morning, before Timothy went to work, Christy told him that the couple would be coming that day to pick up the baby. And when Timothy returned home, Geraldine was gone. That evening, Christy advised Timothy to sell his furniture, quit his job, and get out of London, which Timothy did. Oh, man. Is this the true story? Well, there are some inconsistencies. First, Christy wasn't a documented doctor's visit at the time that Timothy claimed that the first meeting occurred. Okay. Secondly, Timothy gave a lot of details about the state of his wife's body, but he neglected to mention the strangulation marks around her neck, which were very noticeable. Thirdly, could Christy have moved the body in his physical condition? True. And... What kind of father would entrust his baby daughter to a family who he had never heard of, whose address he did not know, and whom he had never met? Not a good one. Not a good one. Timothy was also a liar, and his mother would say mm-hmm. that when he was lying, he spoke much slower than usual because he was trying to put the story <laughs> together while he was telling it. And so this... That's a good tell. So the well... second confession took Timothy a very long time to get out. Okay. Uh, both Mr. and Mrs. Christie... <laughs> I know. <laughs> the lie detector test is when he's just like, uh, and then, uh, and then, <laughs> like a little kid telling a story. All right. Both Mr. and Mrs. Christie gave testimony to the police and their accounts agreed. The police were impressed by Ethel with one of the interviewing officers saying, in my opinion, Mrs. Christie was by no means under the dominance of her husband, which, you know, she very well could not have been. Who knows? Christie... Yeah. He denied ever performing an abortion, let alone one on his housemate. Yes. There you go. Uh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> is that yes, Morris? I, I can't have you sit on the desk. All right. On December 2nd, the police received a phone call from Christy, who told them that his wife had just found a bundle tucked away in the shared wash house. <sighs> no, no. The police arrived no, no, no. and found the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine. In the wash mm-hmm. house. They were just oh. kind of like tucked behind some stuff so geraldine's autopsy was straightforward she had been strangled by a tie which was still wrapped around her Mm. neck when her body was discovered cause of death for beryl was also obvious enough asphyxia due to strangulation by a ligature 
She had a 16-week-old baby in her womb, which had not been touched at all. There were abrasions on the front of her neck, bruises to the left leg, and swelling above the right eye and upper lip that most likely had been caused by a fist and had to have happened not more than 20 minutes before she died. Sure. So, yeah, probably by the person who did it then. Mm-hmm. The coroner also closely examined her vagina with a magnifying glass to try and find traces of semen. He found none, but this is my detour into magnification. Okay. Yay! That was very small, y'all. Cristela Mancy. 50 microns, or 0.002 inches from head to tail. So it's recommended to start at a magnification of at least 400x if you want to see anything, which means you need a microscope. Okay. None with your 10x less. ocular and a 40x objective lens to even obtain this. Also, there's the importance of controls. If you can't see your own or anything that you know is definitely semen with a magnifying glass, you're not going to find it with magnifying glass on a sample. Well, I uh, I did almost want to try this experiment out, but I had no semen nearby. The one time it hurts to be women I was in like, science. Damn it. I, I also <laughs> didn't have a magnifying glass, which kind of stuck me off more. I don't want to buy one. I can get semen. <laughs> awesome. We have so many magnifying glasses <laughs> in the house just because of a curious child, oh, yeah. right? But we also got her a handheld microscope oh, nice. so she could examine bugs and leaves and flowers and stuff like that, which is actually super, super cool. My husband had found a dragonfly that had passed away. Oh, but he brought it in the house so we could examine the wings. Oh, yeah. Cool. It was actually really, really impressive to see the structure of the wings. But yeah, you wouldn't, you can't see that with your naked eye. And that, I mean, that's a pretty big wing <laughs> on the dragonfly. Yeah. I also looked it up. Uh, the average magnifying glass could only magnify two or three X. So some specialized yeah. glasses giving up to 10 X, but that's still a lot less than 400 X. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that guy was doing. Just clueless peering into a vagina with a magnifying glass over his eye he's he's making it sound like he tried he tried are we sure it wasn't a monocle <laughs> oh perhaps timothy evans was brought back to london where he made his third confession it was oh, short shit. quote she was incurring one debt after another and i could not stand it any longer so i strangled her with a piece of rope and took her down to the flat below the same night whilst the old man was in the hospital this was Tuesday, November 8th. On Thursday evening after I came home from work, I strangled my baby in our bedroom with a tie. It is a great relief to get it off my chest. I feel better already. So he has details of the mm-hmm. crime. Jeez. And at the time this happened, there was a guy living in the on the floor in between the Evans and the Christie's, but he was in the hospital, so they might have put some shit in his apartment for a while. <laughs> I know, right? Ah. Wow. All right. A note here is that no one had told Evans how Beryl and Geraldine had been killed or where the bodies had been found, and Timothy nailed it. Mm-hmm. Later that night, Timothy gave his fourth and final confession, which added mostly added more detail to the shorter third confession. So, if you are one of those people who believe that Timothy is guilty of killing his wife and child, then this is the confession that you believe to be the true account of what happens. It got really complicated doing this. Option four. So in this last fourth account, Timothy said he arrived at home at 6.30 p.m. on November 8th. And as soon as he entered the house, Beryl started to argue with him. Timothy just straight backhanded her in the face and she hit him back just as hard. Then 
In a fit of temper, I grabbed a piece of rope from a chair, which I had brought home off my van, and strangled her with it. He then fed Geraldine, put her to bed, and went out for the night and returned quite late. When he returned, he explained how he moved Beryl's body down to the wash house and how he put her body under the sink and then blocked up the front with pieces of wood so the body couldn't be seen. Okay. The next day, he woke up, fed and changed Geraldine before going to work. He also stopped by his mother's house and told her that Beryl and Geraldine had gone to Brighton for a week or two. The next next day, the 10th, Timothy went into work to quit his job, picked up his wages, and told his boss the Brighton story. Then he went and strangled Geraldine with his tie. After midnight, mm. he brought his daughter's body down to the washroom as well and hid her body in a corner behind more wood. On the 14th, he left London for his aunt and uncle's house in Wales. How big is this washroom? I don't actually know. There might be an image on Murderpedia, but I don't know. Because I'm just thinking like it's, an outhouse yeah. type no, thing. And I'm like, those aren't that a sink big. and everything. Like, it's a whole thing. Like a basin. Yeah. And, yeah, okay. All right. Once again, Timothy was dead on on the method of murder and body disposal. That is exactly where the bodies were found. And he also told this last confession in his normal speaking tempo, not the slower tempo that was the telltale oh. sign that he was lying. Right. There are two odd things about this confession, though. First, very unlikely that Beryl's corpse was put into the washroom on the night of the 8th, because there was some work being done um, on the property, and the 11th was the last day that the workmen were there. And they spent okay. those last two days finishing up in the washroom, wash house, and they did not come across a body, which... They probably would have. Yeah, especially if they're doing work in there. Uh, but it's perfectly plausible that Timothy got the timing wrong and the bodies were placed there later. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it is questionable whether Geraldine was killed two days after her mother, as no one heard her crying out. And Timothy, based on his confession, was, was leaving her alone all day. So it's mm-hmm. more likely that she would have been killed at the same time as her mother. Yeah. But the only nearby nearby person is the guy that was in the hospital? No, the Christies would be able to hear it. Oh, yeah, that's true. And probably even the neighbors. The house is really close together, and it was kind of a shitty neighborhood. But I think you would start to hear a baby that's just, like, screaming its head off because it's hungry and left alone in its own feces and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. a police officer followed up with Timothy about Geraldine, telling him, well, one can understand possibly something happening to your wife, but to your baby? That sounds like a bit much. Timothy replied, well, it was the constant crying of the baby that got on my nerves. I just had to strangle it. I had just had to put it into it. I just couldn't put up with its crying. It's also it. Oh my God. Which is dissociative. Timothy Evans' trial began on January 11th, 1950. He was being tried for the murder of his daughter, but the judge permitted evidence from Beryl's killing to be included. Okay. I don't know if this might not be true, but they might only... Maybe at that time only would take you to trial on one, like, murder at a time. Yeah, one case um, so at a time. you couldn't do both huh. at the same time. Timothy entered a plea of not guilty, and his defense focused on his second confession and tried to convince the jury that John Christie was the true culprit. The prosecution focused on Timothy's credibility, the four different confessions, and his history of lying. Sure. John Christie was the star witness for the prosecution. Of course he was. He did very well on the stand and impressed himself to the jury as a soft-spoken, middle-aged man who currently was suffering from chronic pain and also had to deal with the long-term effects of mustard gas exposure. Still talking about that. Again. (laughs) The prosecution also emphasized Christie's military service in World War I and his work as a war-received policeman during World War II. 
The defense tried to discredit Christie by bringing up his prior criminal history, but his last conviction had been 17 years ago, and it appeared to everyone that Christie yeah. had turned his life around. I mean, yeah, it's a long time. Is that when they were like, hey, wait a minute, why was this guy Yeah, yeah, allowed to be a constable? It's when they're like, oh, whoops. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> RB. Timothy went on the stand in his own defense and was absolutely torn to shreds by the prose- prosecution. I can it's only imagine. Brutal to watch. Mm-hmm. They wear those wigs over there, don't they? Well, not oh, the jury, yeah. maybe, but definitely the judge. The yeah, judge, I mean, yeah. yeah. I love it. Uh, it took the jury 40 minutes to decide on a verdict. Timothy John Evans was found guilty of the murder of Geraldine Evans, and the death sentence was passed. When the death sentence was being passed, Christie began sobbing loudly from his seat in the courtroom. Three years later, he would say it was because he was an opponent of capital punishment and felt terrible for being instrumental in sending a man to the gallows. But he'd also been under a great deal of stress, having the police searching all over his premises, when he very well knew there were two bodies buried in his garden. Yeah. Did he put on his red coat and had his purple pumps? Timothy's defense appealed the decision and lost. On March 9th, 1950, Timothy Evans was hanged at Pentonville Prison. Oh, damn. So they carried it out. so fast. His last meal was probably bacon and eggs, the standard prison breakfast. His hangman was Albert Pierpont, who later referred to Evans as an insignificant little man, and said, I'm absolutely certain that he was guilty. Now for a real, we're going on a real side tangent now, sorry y'all. Albert Pierpont is a really interesting dude. Okay. So he was the official hangman for England from 1940 to 1956. And his father and his uncle had been official hangman before him. So he was in the family business, apparently. Yeah. Wikipedia says that Albert executed between 435 and 600 people, which I feel is something we could nail down a little bit better. There were court records. Right. He's like, I'm just going to take care of this one on the I, I don't know. Buy two, get one free. When he wasn't executing people, he ran a pub called Help the Poor Struggler, which is just a fucking great name for a pub. It is. Uh, When he was executing people, he treated the process very seriously and said that execution was sacred to me. So he could have been a serial killer. It's his time to shine. Yep. That's just his MO. Yeah. This is perfect for him. He gets paid. That's why there's not a good number. (laughs) So Albert Pierpont was the executioner for some infamous English murderers, including Timothy Evans. Uh, There's Ruth Mm -hmm. Ellis, the last woman to be hanged in Britain. Gordon Cummings, the blackout ripper. I don't know anything about Mm. him, but I assume he was probably murdering people during the blackout during the Blitz. And John Hay. Hi. H-A-I-G-H. Hey. 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 John Hay. The acid bath murderer, who I am sure I will get to eventually. That one for yes. yeah. sure. Yes. He also hanged 200 people, about 200 people, who had been convicted of war crimes during World War II. So when the Bergen-Belsen yeah. concentration camp was liberated, Albert was the executioner for those camp officials who were sentenced to death, which included Irma Gressy, the beautiful beast, who managed to cram a lot of cruelty and sadism into her short life, as she was only 22 years old when she was sentenced. One of only three female concentration camp guards to be sentenced to death. Okay. Despite his experience as an executioner, and especially his record of executing German war criminals, Albert Pierpont was not chosen to be the hangman for the Nuremberg trials. 
Uh Interesting. So Master Sergeant John C. Woods got the job, and he was relatively inexperienced. Press was invited to the hangings, and afterward, stories and pictures would come out that would suggest that the hangings had been very poorly done. The trapdoor wasn't wide enough, so... Many men oh. Oh, no. many men hit the edges as they fell through, resulting in more than one nose being ripped off. And oh, the ropes did God. not seem to be measured correctly, resulting in a slow strangulation death instead of a quick broken neck. So maybe, maybe they chose Woods for a reason. Yeah. Because of his inexperience, yeah, they might have been looking to inflict a little additional Well, they, they know he would, even if he wasn't even trying to, probably. And Albert would have just, like, neck broke, neck broke, neck broke, you know. Yeah. On a side note, I went to a carnival just outside the building where they held the Nuremberg trials when I was in Germany. Wow. Well, I would probably not go to the carnival. I don't like carnivals, but I would go. It was a nighttime carnival. It was interesting. It was interesting. But my uncle, who was, like, taking us around, was like, oh, this is where they had the Nuremberg Trials. And anyways, we're going to go ride the Ferris wheel like, over here. Oh, my gosh. History <laughs> is just so close. Yeah. So, in 1974, Pierpont published his autobiography, where he does use language to distance himself from the execution, saying, I had to execute Timothy Evans. I had to hang Ruth Ellis. And as his biographer, Brian Bailey, says, he never actually had to hang anyone. But if he yeah. was being paid to do it, though, he kind of had to to collect his paycheck. Well, then you just wouldn't, have the, you just wouldn't take the job. If, uh, no one's forcing him to do that. Maybe I mean, maybe his dad was, but... <laughs> yeah, his dad and his grandpa. It was a legacy like job, this, right? I might be making this up, but maybe, like, in the 1500s or something, maybe in Ireland... This woman was convicted of murder, and her choice was either to be hung or to become the hangman for the town. Oh. <laughs> and she became the hangman. Hangwoman. Wow. So she could continue serial killing yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, not too bad. I was like, hey, you seem to be good at it. You want to just <laughs> do it for work? Pierpont, in his autobiography, wrote on his view of capital punishment, saying, quote, Hanging is said to be a deterrent. I cannot agree. There have been murders since the beginning of time, and we shall go on looking for deterrence until the end of time. If death were a deterrent, I might be expected to know. It is I who have faced them last, young girls and lads, working men, grandmothers. I have been amazed to see the courage which, with which they take that walk into the unknown. It did not deter them, and it had not deterred them when they committed what they were convicted for. All the men and women whom I have faced at that final moment convinced me that in what I have done, I have not prevented a single murder. His longtime assistant was surprised to read this, saying, quote, This is from the man who proudly told me that he had done more jobs than any other executioner in, in English history. I just could not believe it. When you have hanged more than 680 people, it's a hell of a time to find out you do not believe capital punishment achieves anything. <laughs> yeah. Pierre Pont walked back from his firm stance against capital punishment only two years later when he was being interviewed for a radio show where he said that when the autobiography was originally written, there was not a lot of crime. Not like there is today. I am now honestly on a balance and I don't know which way to think because it changes every day. I don't think crime jumped that much in two years. Well, and plus he had already done the, what, 600 or so executions. Over like 17 years. I'm like, "Mm." anyway. That's a tangent. I was going to do a whole episode on him and all the people he hung, but now I think I'll just do the murders. But I think it's super interesting. Mm-hmm. It is. All right. Tangent over. 
after Timothy Evans' execution, there was an open unit at 10 Rillington Place. And then wow. the other yeah. tenant moved out, like the old man that was in the hospital that might have had a corpse in his apartment while he wasn't home. Who knows? He most definitely had a corpse <laughs> yeah. in his apartment. Yeah, if you had an empty place to put it, you won't put it where you are. So old man Sanders won't mind. What you don't know can't hurt you. He's got an alibi. <laughs> He's literally in the hospital. All right, so the Christies were the only ones there for a short while. The property itself was sold, and the Christies got a new landlord. This new landlord, in order to get the most bang for his buck, turned the two empty units into five small rooms to rent. So all wow. the units were filled, and 10 Rillington Place was far more crowded than it had ever been. Yeah. The new landlord, Charles Brown, and the majority of the new tenants were black. This did not sit well with Christie, who complained about the dirty habits of the new tenants to a sanitary inspector, who did come and tour the premises, but it doesn't seem like anything came of that. Okay. No, he's just racist. Christie would continue to complain to anyone who would listen that, quote, Our lives here have been and still are being made intolerable by the persecution of brown and the colored people who are certainly doing all possible to make it impossible for us. We are persistently persecuted by the hard N-word. Uh, what? Uh-huh. Fuck off. Mm, oh my god. Yeah, because it's not as bad as what you got going I on know, back bitch, in the garden please. there, Mr. Christie. The fuck? Uh, the new landlord also wanted possession of half the garden. And Christie, had Which two body? bodies back there, uh, was opposed to the idea. And went so far as to hire a solicitor, who, which caused Charles Brown to back down, and Christie kept the backyard. Christie also continued to make <laughs> frequent visits to his doctor, who documented all of his physical and mental ailments, including a note in 1950 that said he believed that Christie was suffering from a nervous breakdown. <laughs> the last time Christie visited his doctor was on September 6, 1952. Okay. According to most reports, John and Ethel had a good relationship and seemed happy together. They had very few friends or visitors, though, so outsiders never really got a good look, and we are mostly relying on Christie's word here. Although Ethel's letters didn't really set out too many red flags, but after Christie's crimes came to light, a few people came forward with more exciting stories, but I am inclined to believe that these were mostly attention seekers. More likely, it was as one of their neighbors, John Clark, would recall. I've had conversations with both of them, and they have been to my flat. They always seemed a nice, friendly couple, and I never heard of any quarrel. So boring man, boring relationship. I don't know. Yeah. According to John Christie himself, they did stop having sex, saying, It just fell away. Just didn't bother. It made no difference to our affection for each other. My stomach was just like, <laughs> Your stomach was like, I hate this. This seems probably true, and I doubt they were having that much sex in the first place. And even though he was can't do it Christy with conscious girls, he did still like to talk to them and would frequent cafes in search of women. He oh even brought Lord. one of those girls home with him and had the audacity to ask, to ask Ethel to cook dinner for them and then to leave him alone with the girl. <laughs> Ethel did not. Was he drunk? He didn't drink very much. Well, I was going to say because he said it was okay if Ethel oh, did yeah. if she was drinking. That's their rule. Who knows what the rules are? December 14th, 1952, was probably Ethel's last day alive. Christie would later say, quote, My wife had been suffering from a great deal of persecution and assaults from the black people in the house and had to undergo treatment at the doctor's for her nerves. 
In December, she was becoming very frightened from these blacks and was afraid to go about the house when they were about, and she got very depressed. Uh, so, he would say he woke up at about 8 a.m. on December 14th to the sounds of his wife convulsing and choking. And her face was blue. Because oh, you were strangling well, her. Well, Chrissy said that he tried to restore her breathing, but he knew it was hopeless. He couldn't bear seeing her in that state, so he got a stocking and tied it around her neck to put her to sleep. Uh, uh-huh. that's not how uh-huh. this works. Yeah. CPR is kind of uh-huh. the opposite. Mr. First Aid Man. Yeah. Then saw an empty bottle of phenobarbital t- tablets and guessed that she had taken about 25. He put her onto the floorboards of the house because, quote, I did not want to be separated from her. That's why I put her there. Bullshit. She was still in the house. Gross. All right. There were no traces of phenobarbital in the ethyl system. And it's almost certain that this murder was premeditated, especially in light of Christy holding on to a letter that Ethel had written to her sister on December 10th. And he would add his own notes to the letter, saying that Ethel had rheumatism in her fingers and wouldn't be able to write for a while, and he sent that letter on the 15th. Great. Christy asserted that this was a mercy killing, saying, Mm-mm. I love my wife. I hate seeing her suffer. I decided to end her pain forever. My wife died peacefully, with practically no pain. He no, decided. she didn't. Yeah, this is also one or maybe two, but this is the only murder where he didn't talk about rendering the victim unconscious with carbon monoxide first. So it's very possible the woman that he loved was awake and knew full well that she was being murdered. Oh, Jesus. And Christy said later, after she had gone, the way was clear for me to fulfill my destiny. Of what? Being a fucking douchebag I was murderer? like, you already did that, but we're not done. Yeah. Christy became acquainted with Kathleen Maloney in December 1952. Kathleen was having a rough time. She was born on August 19th, 1926, but she was orphaned before she was three years old. She spent her youth moving between relatives and orphanages. And Aunt described her as very wild, but not in a bad way, but full of pranks. Mischief. Mischievous. Yeah. As she became a teenager, her relatives became concerned about her talking to boys, so she was sent to a convent. Oh, fuck. That'll solve it. And in 1943, the convent declared her to be uncontrollable. And by 1944, (laughs) she was living in London and Southampton, moving back and forth between the two. So she lived pretty rough from 1944 to 1953. She was usually homeless and went home with any man she could find and was never very particular as to the type of men she met. Uh, Sometimes she would have to sleep in a public toilet because she had nowhere else to go. Oh, tangent, Sarah. Mm. There's a public toilet in downtown Davis right by the Wonder Bar. Yep. And it's decorated, you know, has all these little, like, squares of different colors. And I thought it was all Davis things. But it's a tarot card. Because it has oh. but it's the tarot card with Davis stuff on it. But I'm like, on the public toilet? Oh. I never try and, like, actually pay attention to those because usually there's a homeless man peeing in them. <laughs> and I'm just like, walk quickly, walk quickly. I was walking quickly. quickly, but I just glanced over and I was like, there's, like, a bicycle on it or whatnot. But I'm like... But it's like, the world, the what? I'm like, I don't love the tarot cards in the public toilet. Oh, very nice. Ooh. It's so good. Oh, it's so, so good. pretty. Jesus How do you make Christ. it look so real? I put flies in the flowers. Oh. Oh. For the garden. Because they're cadaverines. Stanky in there. <laughs> That's so pretty. Thanks. Between 1946 and 1950, Kathleen had five children one of whom was adopted and the other four were sent to children's homes. 
Occasionally, she had a job as a cleaner or a laundress, but was often unemployed. Kathleen okay. was also in trouble with the law quite often and served multiple short terms in jail for offenses such as prostitution, soliciting, drunk and disorderly, assaulting a policeman, and my favorite, using obscene language. All at the same <laughs> yeah, time. Honestly, maybe a couple times, yes. Kathleen struggled with a drinking problem, and her perception of it varied depending on the situation. She told a policeman, it's a free country, I can do what I like. And to a friend, she said, I'm happy-go-lucky and I've had a few drinks. But on a different occasion, she told the court, I have been under treatment for drink in Holloway, but I could not help it. So, I don't think she was that happy-go-lucky when she was drunk either. No, it doesn't sound <laughs> like it if she's fighting police with officers, police officers. Yeah. By 1952, none of her family wanted anything to do with her, and she mostly stayed away from them too. Mm, fair. Kathleen had been out at a pub with Marine Briggs. When they were approached by Christy, who asked them if they wanted to make some money. They did, and so they went with him to a single-room photography studio. Maureen undressed, and Christy took some nudes. Then, Christy himself undressed, and Kathleen took over the camera and took some snaps of Christy and of Christy and Maureen together. Uh. Yes, I now have John Reginald Christy nudes as a Google search. Oh, no. Unsuccessful search, by the way. Oh, okay. oh man. Someone was like, do I scan these and make them digital? No, I do not. You know, they put some wild things up on Murderpedia sometimes, but um, yeah. they do. Yeah. Uh, not uh, Christy dick pics, evidently, is not one of them. Nothing else happened that night. They went on their way, whatever. Uh, so Kathleen had already had a fine interaction with Christy and found him harmless. So Maureen and Kathleen were out at the pub again in January 1953 when Christy showed up again. He had two pints with them, and then he and Kathleen left. And Maureen would estimate that Kathleen had had at least eight pints of beer that night. Mm -hmm. Woo, girl! Wow. According to Christy, Kathleen propositioned him in the street outside his home. I walked away, but she followed and pushed into my house. I asked her to leave, but she went into the kitchen and began to undress. All right, I thought. If ever a woman deserved to die, you do. This is probably not what happened. Kathleen probably needed a place to spend the night, and Chrissy let her in because she's the perfect victim for him. Yeah. So Chrissy would gas her, have sex with her unconscious body, put a makeshift diaper on her, and strangle her. The idea that he's justifying it because, like, she was being lewd. I know. He placed her body in an alcove in the kitchen and wallpapered over it. And I'll post a picture of that on the website. It's on Murderpedia. So y'all can see the alcove because it's much larger than I imagined. And it could definitely fit a body or two. Or five. Or three. All right. Christy met his next victim a few days later. Rita Elizabeth Nelson was born on October 16th, 1927. She was described by her mother as being funny in her way of going. And her sister had spent time in a mental institution, so it's possible that she might have been a bit slow. We don't really know. She also had some brushes with the law, starting with larceny, then drunk and disorderly, assaulting a policeman as well, and prostitution. Uh, She had a son in 1949 and also spent part of 1949 and into 1950 at the Purdy's Mental Home. When she was released, she went to live with her cousin, James Boyd, and on October 6, 1952, they went to London for work. When they arrived, they went their separate ways, and James never saw his cousin again. Very little is known about Rita as a person, but she was living in better circumstances than Kathleen had been. 
She was able to rent a furnished room and had a variety of jobs, and she had enough extra money that she was able to send her parents 30 shillings at Christmas. She paid her weekly rent to her landlady on January 10th, 1953. Her parents last heard from her on January 16th and began to worry in late February when they hadn't heard anything from her. Her landlady Mm -hmm. was a little more on the ball and reported her missing on January 19th because she was two days late with the rent. Uh, (laughs) Another one. Two Two days. days. I know. Landlady's probably got mouse to feed too, so. Yeah. All right. Best guess is that she was murdered on January 14th, 1953. All we really know is that Christy somehow got her to come back to his home Gassed and strangled her, had sex with her body at some point, and then put her body in the same alcove as Kathleen's. Rita's disappearance was noticed and reported to the police, but it seemed like if there was an investigation, it didn't go anywhere. Did he put zippers on the wallpaper? Like, is he just... (laughs) Christie's last victim was Hederita McKay McLennan. She was born on February 26, 1926. She was a very heavy smoker to the point of having nicotine-stained fingers on her right hand. According to someone who knew her, she was easily led and easy to take advantage of. Uh, Frank Collier, a 39-year-old man who was separated from his wife and was seeing Hedorina on and off, would recall that, quote, she wore no makeup and was generally untidy. I was like, yeah, okay, dude, thank you for that. (laughs) Useful. It'd be worse if she did wear makeup and was still (laughs) untidy, because then it's like you're spending that much time on your face when you could be doing this, this, and this. Uh, She did have two children. The first was born in 1949, and she never told her family who the father of her daughter was. She had her second child in early 1951. The father was a Burmese Air Force man. I thought you were going to say dog. I thought you were going to say python. Oh my god! No, a man! A man! (laughs) Okay. Who she may or may not have married, but he definitely did exist, uh, because he would visit her often at her family's house, and her family did meet him. So he's a real guy. This man did go back to Burma, though, in 1951, and Hectorina talked about joining him in Burma, and she used his surname on government documents, but she also talked about marrying Frank Collier, so who knows? (laughs) It's often reported that all of Christie's last three victims were sex workers, but there is no evidence that Hectorina was. She also stayed out of trouble with the law and was able to find work when she needed to. From June 1951 until December 1952, she was the nanny to the youngest child of Alexander Pomeray Baker. She was very quickly dismissed when Mrs. Baker found out that Hectorina was having an affair with her husband. That'll she do it. She didn't leave the job, but she remained on and off with Baker. So on about February 18th, um, 1953, she reunited with Baker again. Frank Collier had been arrested the previous day, so that might have had something to do with it. Uh, This couple bounced around from place to place, only staying a few nights at any one location. And this is probably how they met Christy, who had been advertising that he had rooms to rent. So Christy told her to come and see the rooms, but she disappointed him by bringing Baker with her. The couple ended up spending a few nights with Christy in his apartment, and Baker would testify that he never smelled or saw anything unusual. Those bodies, the ones in the, like, alcove were like a month old, and Ethel's under the floorboards, two months at least. Yeah, that's gonna be awful. Anywho, this was not an arrangement that suited Christy very well, and after a few days, he told them they had to leave because Baker was being very unpleasant. He sent them off on March 6th, but did say that if they didn't find anything that day, they could come back for the night. He's like, man, your place stinks. Don't you ever clean? (laughs) Tarina and Baker split up to try to find new lodgings. For some reason, Hectorina went back to Christy's alone that afternoon. 
At 3 p.m., Baker was waiting for her at a cafe and she never showed up. Around 5 p.m., he went back to Christy's home, but Christy told him that he hadn't seen Hectorina and even let Baker take a peek around the house. Baker looked for her that night, but did not report her missing, as she did have a habit of just wandering off by herself and disappearing for a while and coming back. Okay. Christy was able to convince two other women to come back to his house, but they both survived. Uh, He was also on the street trying to entice other women, but all of these other women felt a little creeped out by him and declined. Uh, And he might have been starting to devolve by this point and wasn't able to present that respectable middle-aged man side of him. He'd pretty much thrown himself fully into murder by this time, so things like work and paying the rent had all been pushed to the side. His hobby's just taking up too much time. And don't make this into, like, your side hustle. No. (laughs) Yeah. It's not very lucrative. On March 20th, 1953, Christy illegally sublet his unit to the Riley family, and he left 10 Rillington Place for the last time. Mrs. Riley would say, I noticed a very unpleasant smell in the kitchen. Oh, finally? (laughs) I thought it was the dog, as he used to have a dog there. It was a very noticeable scent. Charles Brown... The landlord shut out that day and was surprised to find them there, and he made them leave. He then rented the unit to Beresford Brown, who moved in on March 21st. So Beresford started working on getting the rooms back in order, as it was left an absolute dump. He wanted to install Mm -hmm. a radio and a wall in the kitchen, and he discovered that one of the kitchen walls was actually hollow. And he pulled aside the wallpaper to find three dead and decaying bodies. He called the police, and they took over the scene. Yeah. Can you just imagine? Not even a like, not even a little. What bit. is this? And you're like pull and just like no. <sighs> As one police officer recalled, "Quote: Over the years, I have seen some shocking sights, but never one so unnerving as that which greeted ourselves." And that was just the the one yes. area. They're, they're not done As yet. As the police were searching the house, they noticed some loose floorboards in the living room. Pried those up. Hmm, this is found creepy. a fourth body. The body of Ethel Christie. I have, hope not all mm-hmm. creaky floors have a body beneath them. <laughs> Further investigation found the two bodies buried in the garden, only skeletons by this point. There was also a femur, a human femur, holding up the garden fence that had been there since before Beryl and Geraldine's death and the police missed it. A fucking the femur? Big ass bone. They're like, huh, this is a weird plank. That's your long That's bone. The, yeah, the biggest one you got. They think it was beef? They never mentioned it. They may never they have noticed like, it. Like, yeah. past it. Like, hiding in plain yeah. sight. Like, I mean, bones when they're weathered can look like old wood. They can. Yeah. Like, driftwood and stuff. If you see the, like, the, you know, the... Yeah, the, the hip joint. The socket. The ball of the ball and socket. That looks suspicious. It's kind of a dead giveaway. <laughs> mm. Dead, dead giveaway. giveaway. Ha. <laughs> The oddest thing they found was a small metal tin, uh, like an Altoids container, but instead of mints, it had pubic hair inside. Ugh. Oh, God, no. <laughs> and there were four different sets, so somehow we had them, like, rubber like banded together or something so they could tell there were four different sets. I was just imagining, like, huh, it's not rattling, what's in here? Opening it, it's just like, <laughs> Like, one of those, like, a uh, fake jars where that, like, fake snake pops out. Oh, yeah. Bunches and bunches of hair. So. Oh my god. Four different sets. They did not belong to any of the bodies that were found in the alcove. Oh no. 
Possibly one set could have been from Ethel, although it would have had to have been cut sometime prior to her death. So, like, while she was sleeping? He's just like... Yeah, and then he let it grow out. He just and while, for you. And then he killed her when it grew back in. Two sets of hair might have belonged to the skeletons in the garden, but the owner of the fourth set of pubic hair would never be identified. Oh my God. Uh, while their crime scene was being processed, the police also had to find their suspect. The Ripper of Rillington Place was on the loose. Oh. And Christy was identified and caught because of his fucking big-ass forehead was that distinctive. Yeah, it really is. So he was found on March 31st, 1953, after about a week of wandering the streets of London, doing a, a whole lot of nothing and running out of the limited money that he had. And Christy was caught by a policeman who was walking down his beat when he came across an unshaven man who looked pretty rough down on his luck. The patrolman asked the man to take off his hat. <laughs> The man obliged without a fight, and the patrolman was was able to quite easily recognize him uh, because of that fucking sex. Ah, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to need to come with me. <laughs> sir. <laughs> on April 1st, he was charged with his wife's murder, and on April 15th, Christy was brought back to the courts, who also be charged with the murder of Rita, Kathleen, and Hectorina. His legal defense was paid for by the owners of the Sunday Pictorial, a tabloid, newspaper that wanted his story yeah and they they did get it the defense figured that their best bet was to go for an insanity plea so christy would not confess to any crimes unless proof was presented to him so on april 22nd christy was told of the skeletons in the back garden which would lead him to confess to killing ruth first and muriel Edie, but he wouldn't bring it up beforehand Okay. Plausible deniability, so he's not gonna mm-hmm. say anything. He's not gonna give you anything. Yeah, you gotta you gotta work for it. Hi, Audrey. <laughs> Please also asked him about the Evans murders, and at first he denied having anything to do with them, but on June eighth he would make a long confession to the murder of Beryl Evans, where he basically said that Beryl wanted to commit suicide. She wanted him to help her and he finally agreed after she nagged him enough. Okay. And Christy liked to think of himself as a gentle guy, and he explained himself by saying that he agreed to do it so that Beryl would have an easy death. Ah. Uh. He then... Mm-hmm. He told police that he gassed her and then strangled her with a pair of stockings when she passed out. But she had blood on her face and on her nose and, yeah. like... Ugh. He would make several statements of the sort, changing some of the minor details, but keeping the major stuff the same. Okay. But like you're saying, his confession would not match up to what the autopsy found, mm-hmm. especially because Beryl's face was bruised, which indicated an assault about 20 prior. minutes before she died. Yeah. yeah. And Christy gave a pretty long and detailed confession, but never once did he mention an assault or a fight or hitting Beryl in the face. Okay. And the autopsy was also very clear that Beryl had not been gassed, and they even ex- exhumed the body to double check. They were still right. It had not been gassed. Okay. She had been strangled, but the object was most likely a rope, not a stocking. Uh, and lastly, while telling his confession, Christy forgot where he was a couple times, so his timeline didn't match up in some places because there was evidence that he was at the doctor or at work during the time that he said he was doing something else. Hmm. Well, he's committed so many heinous crimes, I mean, you just can't remember where you are. I can't keep track of him. Jesus. In jail, Christy was examined by a few psychiatrists. One described him as noticeably egocentric and conceited he keeps a photograph of himself in his cell oh my god this is he has been a great talker and seems to enjoy discussing the case bringing the conversation back round to it he has been cheerful and boastful 
And then a second psychiatrist described him in my current favorite way to insult someone as an inadequate psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) All of the psychiatrists would agree that Christy was sane and fit to stand trial. Christie's trial for the murder of Ethel Christie began on June 22nd, 1953. Christie pleaded not guilty and took the stand in his own defense. A journalist described him as, quote, a worried-looking, insignificant little mouse of a man, <laughs> a sad little monster. His memory of his childhood and adult life were fine and detailed, but as soon as he was asked questions about the murders, he got quite vague. I just cannot recollect, or I do not know whether I was doing it, and so on and so forth. When he was asked why he hadn't mentioned the murder of Ruth, Muriel, and Beryl in his initial statement, Christie replied that he had simply forgotten about them. Well, fuck. Oh, jeez. When asked for a motive, he would just say, no, there was no reason. This is no sense. And, uh, I did not want to hurt her. I have never hurt anybody. Uh-uh. <laughs> Uh, the jury took 80 minutes to deliberate and ca- deliberate and came back with a unanimous verdict of guilty. I wrote not guilty, but that is that's <laughs> the most right. egregious typo I've made on the script so far. <laughs> that's the opposite. The judge then passed the formal sentence of death. As he was taken back to Pentonville Prison, there was a slight public demonstration against Christie, and people were booing him and calling him names. Christie was a bit annoyed by this and told one of the prison wardens, how disgusting some people are. Oh. Mm-hmm. The audacity of this man. Judge. Judging. Oh. Uh, uh, can't. I can't even formulate a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Christy and his defense team did not file any appeals, but his execution was delayed a bit because an inquest had been started for Timothy Evans' case to determine whether there might have been a miscarriage of justice. Sure. Not everyone was excited about this because no one wants to hear they had executed an innocent man. Right. Other people were quite ready for the inquest, especially considering the coincidence, saying, quote, But can one strangler, each strangling women, always by a ligature, and neither aware that his housemate was like himself? Some claim that to suggest that this coincidence could come about is to stretch credulity too far. So Christie was interviewed for the inquest and was his usual helpful self. When asked whether he was responsible for the deaths of Beryl and Geraldine, he would say, I'm not sure, and I cannot say whether I was or not. Annoyed, they pressed harder and got this response. It is not a case of whether I am prepared to or not. I just cannot unless I was telling some lie or other about them. It is still fogged, but if someone said, well, it's obvious you did, and there's enough proof about it, then I gladly accept that I did it. Uh, yeah, great, thanks. Super helpful, my dude. All right, the inquest findings were summarized as, one, the case for the prosecution against Evans as presented to the jury at his trial was an overwhelming one. Two, having considered all material now available, they are satisfied that there can be no doubt that Evans was responsible for both deaths. And three, that any of Christie's statements that he was responsible for the death of Beryl Evans were unreliable and untrue and probably made in an attempt to strengthen his insanity case. Which is actually kind of true. His lawyers did tell him to do that. Hmm. Well, and he was egomaniacal. So, like, there maybe he was jealous that Timmy committed Timmy the murders. Like, this little dummy is getting the murder. He's getting right? all the credit. What's, like, what are the chances, though, that two psychopaths... Like, the coincidence seems astounding. Right. 
There is a, a small serial killer joke that's like when, like, if you're picking up hitchhikers, uh-huh. and the hitchhiker's like, what if I'm a serial killer? And then you look at the hitchhiker and say, what would be the odds that there would be two serial killers <laughs> in the car? That was a good one. <laughs> All right. Well, that unhelpful testimony out of the way, we can move forward to the execution. Hang him high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had no official last words. Uh, and I don't have a last meal, although he did have a drink the night before his execution. They could do that? Apparently. And he usually didn't drink very much at all, so it's a little rare. Mm-hmm. But um, he was executed on July 15th, 1953 by Albert Pierpont and on the same gallows as Timothy Evans. Okay. Ah. It was a clean death. Pierpont would say, I hang John Reginald Christie, the monster of Rillington Place, in less time than it took the ash to fall off a cigar, which is a fun way to measure time. Yes, it is. Uh, Christie was buried on the prison grounds, and he would be the last serial killer to be executed in England. Okay. There remained a lot of controversy about this case and the death penalty in general. And in 1965, a second inquest was conducted by Justice Daniel Braben, a judge of the high court. Raven concluded that it was most probable that Timothy Evans killed his wife, probably after a fight about money. Mm -hmm. As to whether John Christie became involved, Raven wrote, quote, It is not possible to know how Christie became aware of the killing of Beryl Evans, whether he discovered it after hearing another fight, or whether Evans sought help after he killed his wife cannot be known. I got it. He went out to take a shit. (laughs) And he found the bodies and was like, what the, the fuck? fuck is this? I'm the only serial killer at 10 Rillington. He's like, did I do this? He's <laughs> like, whoa, wait, wait, wait a did minute. I, did I black out? I can't recall. Where did these come from? It has to be me. Man, that mustard gas. <laughs> Raven concluded that Christy helped dispose of Beryl's body because he definitely did not want a corpse in the house with those two bodies out in the backyard. But no, because then he put three more in his house. Four more space. Yeah, but Bar- like Beryl was going to be noticed. Yeah. As to Geraldine, Raven would say, quote, I find the evidence in respect to the death of Geraldine more perplexing. I do not believe that he who killed Beryl Evans must have necessarily killed Geraldine. They were separate killings done, I think, for different reasons. I think it was more probable than not that Christie did it. It was a killing in cold blood that Christie would be more likely to do. As a result of the second inquest, Timothy Evans was given a posthumous pardon, as he had only gone to trial and been convicted of killing his baby daughter, Geraldine. And not his wife. And the results of this inquest do strongly suggest, though, that if he had been convicted of killing his wife, then the verdict would have been upheld. Okay. Because he never went to trial for the murder of his wife. Yeah, because one and done, right? If they've got a death sentence, they're not going to pursue an additional death sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So... Who knows? I don't know who killed Beryl and Geraldine Evans. To me, I find it hard to believe that John Christie would have killed Geraldine if he hadn't also killed Beryl. I don't know why he he'd never killed babies. Like, yeah, that wasn't his motive. It wasn't his thing, and it would just be so much easier to like take Geraldine away, like, or even sell her at that time, right? Because oh my God, I'm sure yeah. families would have paid. Uh huh. And like, I feel like if. Christy was the one that murdered Beryl, then it totally makes sense that he murdered Geraldine at the same time. Sure. If Timothy murdered Beryl, I just can't really see how Christy popped in and killed the baby. No. So I don't know 
I agree. I think it was whoever it was. They did both of them, whoever it was. Yeah, so we'll never know, I guess, whether there was a miscarriage of justice or who actually killed Beryl and Geraldine, but... Honestly, I'm not sad about either one of them getting no. the death penalty. Yeah, it's not the most egregious, but... All right, so that's the case. Instead of astrology, I brought some crystal talk instead. Woo! Crystals. Because Beryl is a mineral. It is. It's relatively rare, and it's clear in its purest form. So when you have the clear version, it's a really good stone for when you're feeling overwhelmed and can help you kind of prioritize what do you actually need to do and what can you put to the side for a while. Impurities in this crystal matrix will add color to barrel, which causes there to be many different varieties of barrel. So I'm going to talk about three of those. So aquamarine Ooh. Mm-hmm, is the green-blue form of barrel. Okay. Nice. The blue colors come from the inclusion of iron ions that are in the fairest form. And so that's what makes it nice and blue. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of courage and brings calming energies to reduce stress and quiet a racing mind. It's the birthstone for the month of March, and it's also a crystal associated with Pisces. It's definitely a color we vibe with. I was like, that beautiful blue-green color makes think of water and the ocean. It's perfect for those watery signs. That's why I love fluorite. It looks similar. Mm -hmm. It's really pretty. Barrel that is medium to dark green is actually emerald. (gasps) Yeah. That's my birthstone. Uh Uh-huh. Although it only has light green coloring, then it's referred to as green barrel. So there's like a... Spectrum. There's a spectrum that has to like be this green or more. Okay. Green comes from chromium, at least 2%, and sometimes vanadium as well. Emerald is the traditional birthstone for May and for cancers. So emeralds enhances patience, fortitude, and grit. And some cancers I can think of definitely sometimes need that fortitude to ground themselves, to push <laughs> forward, and not get completely bogged down in their emotions. feelies. Any one particular cancer? Ha! Eh. Emerald is also known as a stone of successful love. It enhances unity, loyalty, and friendships in partners. That's sweet. And lastly, barrel with mang- manganese ion inclusions form a peach or pink colored crystal called morganite, morganite, which I fucking love. Yeah. It's been increasing in popularity since 2010, and it's the rarest form of barrel. Okay. It was named after J.P. Morgan, which I'm kind of mad about, but uh, apparently he was a big collector of gemstones, and he donated most of his collection to the American Museum of Natural History in okay. New York, so I don't know if they're still there. This is not more Rose shit. No, and I, I hope they're still there, but like, I like looking at crystals. Mm-hmm. Like most pink stones, it's a stone of the heart. It can bring healing to those with a broken heart and can also bring compassion, which is something that I often need to remind myself to have for myself. And others. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes you're the hardest on yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was mostly joking at the Capricorn energy, but yeah. It attracts and maintains love. And even more importantly, if you are someone like me, it opens the individual up to accepting love again. Aww. Morganite's yes. too expensive for me, but I did a lot of work with rose quartz and dream amethysts and some other stuff about these kind of issues. But So, I have a short what's happening this week in the sky. Speaking of love and whatnot. Sweet. On Tuesday, April 5th, Venus enters Pisces. Love, Woo. love, love. And we'll stay there for the next four weeks. So, it's an expansion of love and compassion and kindness. These are four weeks that can be filled with dreaming. So, like, open your mind and your hearts and 
feel your dream, your deepest dreams and see what those are and how they make you feel. Be careful putting your dreams onto someone else who might not actually embody them. You gotta, can't keep your head in the clouds completely, especially in relationships. People definitely fall in that trap a lot where you just project what you want to someone that doesn't actually meet it. But <laughs> on Friday, April 8th, the sun will square with the moon, which can be a difficult aspect. On Friday? But, yeah. Okay. But pushing through the difficulty and discomfort can help you discover what you really want and need. And then you can harness the moon energy to help you manifest and to move towards those goals. So sometimes those times, those tough times show you what really matters to you and you can focus on those things. Okay. And moon energy is always there to help you manifest, work towards your goals, and then might be the last quarter of the moon so which is always a good time to just cut out what's not working and reassess reset. where you're standing with your mm-hmm. and then lastly on saturday april 10th mercury enters taurus mercury the planet of communication nice. and the calm and steady energy of taurus will bring us some much needed earthiness nice nice uh with the sun and fiery aries and venus and dreamy pisces <laughs> this is a reminder to take a moment To think before you speak. Okay. To save yourself from fights and hurt feelings and whatnot. Aries love to just bust right into a fight. Yeah. They're super fiery and then dreamy Pisces is just not even paying attention half the time. But ground yourself a little bit and then have busy drawing. Okay. (laughs) I know what you guys are doing so well. Maybe don't ground yourself. I don't know. All right, that's all I had. Awesome. Fucking long. No, that's all right. Just real quick, I've got a couple more. On April 7th, Mercury and Aries will be sextile with Saturn in Aquarius. And this is an innovative aspect. So it brings with it good judgment and honest communication. So it's a really good day if you have to negotiate like a contract or some sort of business deal. I should talk to Scott that day. <laughs> I should talk to Michigan. Oh. Did I tell you? Oh, I'll tell no, you. No, yeah, I'll tell you later. <laughs> And then on April 8th, the Mercury in Aries is going to be sextile with Mars in Aquarius. And this is where your mind starts working at a very rapid pace because, again, this is a very innovative aspect as well. And so you can get a lot of work done in a short period of time. So good. to I need that. Okay. Mm-hmm. April 8th. That's your day. Putting it down on the calendar. Okay. It's a Friday, though. I don't want to do a bunch of work. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're like, I just want to have a beer and not work. Chill out. But yeah, that was intense. Yeah. I um, solemnly swear that I'm going to just make it easy on myself and bring a really shorty one next time. Sounds good. These have been two <laughs> fucking heavy scripts and long recordings. Yeah. So I'm Sorry. tired. <laughs> You're good. I enjoy it. We would still love to hear from all of you if you want to reach out to us. Do you think Timothy Evans is guilty or do you think Christy is guilty of murdering Beryl and Geraldine? Yeah. And also, if any of you guys know how to like promote a podcast, let us know. We can be reached at Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, on Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly and please do. We're at truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.truecrimetrine.com. And I do have an Aries quote. Okay, good. I forgot about a quote. Well, you did a lot, so I'll take the quote. (laughs) 
I'll take the <laughs> yes, quote. Yes, please. And this is an Aries quote in honor of my mom. Hi. And if you Hello. haven't, please check out episode three. That is where Mama Pearl makes her debut Hello. on TCT. And the quote is from an unknown source, but it says, quote, it's funny how Aries females have more balls than men. <laughs> End quote. Okay. That sounds like Pearl. Yes. Ah, yeah. uh, damn. That's a good one. All right. I am tired. Bye. 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 Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.